0: Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. So great to be with you once again. And um, actually, I was thinking about our online community, which has grown so much throughout COVID and I'm just so grateful for you. Um, I know that you know this weekend, uh, in, at least in Oregon, mask mandates go away in terms of indoor, and, and that might mean we see some of you back in church in person. It might mean some of you still stay at home for various reasons, and I, I just want you to know for all of that, we're just glad you're part of this family. We want you to know you're just absolutely essential to the life of this church, and it can feel distant at times because we're looking at each other through screens, but I just want you to hear again how much you mean to us, regardless of if you're in person or online. We are just so glad you're here. And uh, today we continue our series that we're calling Seek. It is our, our series around Lent, this whole idea of what it looks like to pursue Jesus, which is really a theme of Lent. And uh, today we talk about the idea of seeking in worship. Now, among the things that have always, I think to me, been perhaps among the most mysterious things about life in the church community is how we understand that single word, worship. Because the word is defined in so many different ways, isn't it? It has corporate meaning. You know, we gather together on Saturday nights or on Sunday mornings, we go to worship, right? Right? but it also can refer to that part of the service that includes a lot of singing. That's our time of worship. As if that's not enough, it also has personal meaning. I love that church's worship, which usually refers to song choice, uh, song style, and instrumentation that matches my preferences. And this is significant because every generation has its type for different things. Its type of music, its type of cars, its type of TVs. It even has its favorite era of Star Wars movies, perhaps, or its favorite Batman. You know, you can vote maybe down below what's your favorite, who's your favorite Batman. But every generation, in addition to that, has its favorite type of worship. And you don't mess with that. <laughs> in, in fact, in my experience, Church folks would be more likely to allow you to mess with their theology than to mess with their music. You just don't touch that stuff. It's so personal to us because this is the music that was going on when we met Jesus. It's like the soundtrack of our salvation. So to hear those songs, some of them, it's like coming home. It's our worship native tongue. Now, for some, that, that language is, is the powerful hymns of old. You know, How Great Thou Art, Amazing Grace, Fanny Crosby's Blessed Assurance. For others, it's the songs of the Jesus Movement. Uh, "O oh Lord, You're Beautiful by Keith Green, As the Deer by Maranatha. Maybe you're more like me. It's it's Hillsong. Before it was Hillsong United and Hillsong Young and Free. It was just Hillsong. It was just Darling Jack, where among my first experiences of being caught up in attention to Jesus, being caught up in worship, was singing Shout to the Lord. Perhaps your language of worship is found in in the current, the more modern expressions. You know, songs like The Everlasting or Maverick City, Gyro. We sang that last week here in church. No, I I love all of those expressions. And I'm so grateful for, for the many expressions because these works of art, they have the ability to point us to Jesus, to help us to see him. They speak to different hearts in different ways. So they're they're wonderful. But we can also, I think, point to the songs throughout the years that were less than artful, (laughs) less than lasting. Maybe it was bad theology, bad musicianship, bad writing, or some combination of all three. Among my favorites of these songs was one we used to sing that was called Blow the Trumpet in Zion. Now, no one ever seemed to do the work of looking up the biblical reference for where that came from. If they did, they would have discovered that that entire song was telling the story of locusts that would come and wipe out all the crops in the land because the people had turned away from God. And we were just singing that song so happy, blow the trumpet in Zion. It was, it was, it was the opposite of happy. It was bugs. It's like, yay, bugs are coming Awesome. It was just not a lasting song. So all of that tells us that the songs or these tools that we use in worship, they, they have a very personal, very subjective quality. They're not perfect. They can be soiled by human frailty. They can be misguided. Yet they still have this ability to draw us to the one who is perfect, the one who is worthy of all our praise. And that's the real point. Sometimes for us, worship, it's just about my preferences, these songs, these instruments, this format. And sometimes that's our entire understanding of what it means to worship, that it's really all about me. (laughs) Where in fact, true worship is just the opposite. True worship is all about God. The God who loves us without fail and who thankfully does not change with the many waves of the iTunes Top Ten Worship Music Chart. So, just because we speak of worship doesn't mean we necessarily fully understand worship. And knowing that to be true, today we're going to engage the story of another hero in Scripture, a hero who sought Jesus for one simple, selfless reason— to worship, And my hope is that as we unpack the way she sought Jesus in worship, perhaps we could seek him in a similar way. And the first thing I would point out is this. Those who seek to worship, worship in gratitude. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Looking at verse 6 and 7, let's read it together. Big voices go. Now when Jesus was at Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, this passage only says a woman came up to him, but in John's account of the same event, we see it as likely Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And Mary, in this powerful, emotional moment, literally pours out this extravagant gift upon Jesus as an act of worship. It's extravagant because the flask itself was made out of of alabaster. It was a stone that looked a lot like marble, but it was much softer so you could carve it into some amazing artwork and, and things of this nature. Fine, refined vessels. But in addition to that, the contents of that vessel were this incredibly, abundantly fragrant perfume. It's called spikenard. It's made from the plants that grow on the Himalayan mountainside. So that's pretty exotic stuff. That made it very expensive. We're told it's worth a year's wages. Take Eugene's medium, Family income, for example, which is approximately $50,000 a year. That's similar to what this perfume would have cost her in our terms, $50,000. And so because it was so expensive, the norm was to just put a drop of this stuff on a person. It was so powerful, it would work kind of like essential oil. It would fill the room even with just a drop. They didn't have a lot of showers back then. So this made folks just a little bit fresher. It was a way to honor and to love. But that's not what Mary does. We see here she takes it and she pours it out on Christ's head. The same account in John shows shows us pouring it on his feet. Now that's not contradictory. No, together it means she dumped it on him. She anointed him. She poured out her great gift. It was extravagant. Why would she do that? Well, ultimately, because she was overwhelmed with gratitude. Gratitude for what, you might ask? Well, for starters, look whose house they were at. Simon the leper. (laughs) Now, that's more than just a catchy nickname he picked up in school somehow. No, Simon had been a leper. All right. Can you imagine going to Simon's house back then? Hey, nice to meet you. I'm Simon the leper. Put her there. And you're like, I think I'll pass on the handshake. Thanks for that, Simon. No. (laughs) But here they are at Simon the leper's house. Why? Because Simon wasn't a leper anymore. Jesus had healed him. He was grateful people didn't show up to his parties when he was a leper, but now they do because he's healed. Now that's a pretty good reason to throw a party. But if that's not enough, don't forget, Lazarus was Mary's brother and Jesus had just raised him from the dead. (laughs) So this was also a back from the dead party. This was a resurrection party, right? And there ain't no party like a resurrection party because a resurrection party, don't stop. (laughs) This was a gathering of gratitude, but not just for what Jesus had done, but also for what Jesus was going to do. We'll see later in this passage, Jesus says, "She, she did this to anoint me for burial, that he was going to give his life for all of us. And she was expressing that profound thanksgiving for what Jesus had already done, but also somehow she was expressing gratitude for what Jesus would do. That's what made this act of worship so powerful, thanking God for what he's already done and thanking him for what he's yet to do. That's what should fuel our worship, this kind of gratitude that I want to bestow upon Jesus the most valuable, the most sacrificial, the most extravagant gift that I can in my worship. Knowing that nothing I could give will ever compare to what Jesus has given to me. That because I have experienced extravagant love, I have to respond with extravagant worship. Because extravagant love fuels extravagant worship. This was possible because this woman, she, she saw Jesus for who he was. Mary saw Jesus for who he was. And so she couldn't help but give it all. She was so grateful to see him. Reminds me of a story, there was an elementary school classroom and the teacher had the students drawing for an activity, you just sort of free drawing whatever you'd like to draw. And she goes to one student and says, hey, uh, what is it that you're drawing there? And they say, well, I'm, I'm drawing God. <laughs> and she laughs and said, sweetheart, nobody knows what God looks like. And the child looked up and said, well, they will after I'm done with my picture. <laughs> Our problem is, we don't see all of who God is. Yet Mary saw more of who Jesus was on that day. She recognized this was the God of extravagant love, and that love called for an extravagant worship. But see, our world doesn't know what to do with extravagance. Just as we will see later, the disciples didn't even understand what to do with it. Yet even though so many didn't get it, Mary was willing to bring this extravagant gift to Jesus. Are we willing to do the same? See, our world may punish extravagance, but God's kingdom is defined by it. Remember, this is the God who gives everything. This is the God who first breaks the jar over us. The God who pours out his life of unmatched value over our lives of unmatched need. God is extravagant love. So our lives and our worship must be marked by a similar extravagance. She poured out her jar just as Jesus was pouring out his life. And in the same way, our lives can and must respond by bestowing great gifts upon Christ. Because those who seek to worship, they walk in gratitude. That's the first thing. Here's the second. Those who seek to worship walk in beauty. Let's continue the passage, Matthew 26, 8 through 10. Let's read it together. Big voices, go. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. See, I think the question for us when I read that is, Okay, how do I replicate this? If I'm going to look at that, how do I replicate and do what she did? Jesus was right there in the room. <laughs> And because of that, Mary was able then to pour this fragrant offering onto his head, onto his feet. But it's not the same for us. Jesus isn't here in that same way in this season. But here's what's so cool. Just prior to this event in Matthew 25, Jesus told this parable about a king who represented God, who said, I was hungry and I gave you food and I, I was thirsty and you gave me water, and I needed clothes, and and you clothed me, and I was sick, and you took care of me, and I was in prison, and you visited me. And everybody said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and needing clothes and sick? We don't remember doing that for you. In Matthew 25, 40, this is the reply. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. How do we accomplish doing beautiful things for Christ? In part, by doing beautiful things for Christ's kids, for people. Among the things that we have hoped to do here as a church more than anything else this year is simply show kindness to our community, knowing that it is God's kindness that leads us to turn to him, to experience him. And and you even saw some of this in the announcements today. But you know, talking about you know breakfast burritos and donuts for teachers. We've also done cookies and treats for healthcare workers. And in fact, a few weeks ago, we've we've had some some little kid basketball teams that have been practicing in our gym because the schools weren't open because of COVID. And so we decided we want to do more than just let them practice. But at the end of the season. We invited them downstairs in our fireside room and we said, we just, we just put out a banana split bar for you. We just wanna give you this just to say we, we love you. We're glad you've been a part of our world a little bit. And my hope is that when those kids think of church, they think of banana splits, <laughs> they think of ice cream, they think of something good, something beautiful. And to me, there's really nothing more beautiful than a banana split. That, friends, is worship. It's our less than perfect attempt to do something beautiful for someone else. Because in doing so, I'm actually doing something beautiful for Christ. You want to stand out? You want to make a difference in this world? Do something beautiful for someone else. I mean, isn't that the cry of our culture, especially now amidst war in Europe, the suffering of so many that we are watching in real time? There's so much ugliness, and yet God's people are called to do beautiful things amidst an ugly world. Because amidst all of that noise, there is one thing that becomes a flare amidst the darkness of this world, expressions of beauty. You just have to look because they're so rare and they're so compelling and they're so transformative. And this passage tells us why that when we bless someone with that kind of beauty in the name of Jesus, it's the same as blessing Jesus himself. It's worship. Those who seek to worship walk in beauty. That's the second thing here is the last thing. Those who seek to worship walk in dedication. Let's finish the passage, Matthew 26, verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I love how Jesus shuts the haters down. (laughs) Mary could have done a lot of different things with that ointment. She could have saved it. She could have sold it. She was even pressured to do so from the disciples, especially Judas, who wanted to take his cut. But she was able to see that amidst so many pressures and so many needs and so many concerns that surrounded her every day, just like we have around us every day, she was able to see that Jesus must be the center of it all. There's the dedication And that that message is as relevant to each of us here in this time of 2022 as it was in Simon's house in Bethany some 2,000 years ago, that we too must make Jesus the center of our today. That's our worship. It's, It's a life of worship. A life that Jesus then says, if you live that way, That's a life that's worth telling others about. He says what what she did will be told in memory of her. We're told to remember how she lived, how how she loved, how she gave, how she worshipped, because she reminds us of this truth. Once we understand the fullness of Christ's sacrifice, we will be compelled to give the fullness of our own. She gave everything, everything of value. Here we see an example for everyone who would say, I want to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to live a life in response to the gospel, a life of extravagant giving. And this kind of life, it makes a difference. It's vulnerable, it's notable. She gave Christ the highest priority in her life, the most elevated place. Will we do the same? And for that, Mary of Bethany becomes a picture of what it looks like to seek Christ in worship. Because those who seek Christ walk in that kind of dedication. I'll wrap up with this. Years ago, I bought one of those file cabinets that is meant to withstand fire and flood and I wanted it to protect those really important documents that are hard to replace you know your birth certificates and your insurance information Pokemon cards that kind of thing I don't have any Pokemon cards no judgment on those who do but I don't but I bought this thing and on the outside it 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 looks really big on the outside and it weighs a lot it's heavy but you open it up and there's really not much room inside. And so I had to make some decisions at that point as to which things mattered most in my life, which things that I want to make sure I kept no matter what. I had to decide what I would make room for and what I would let go of. Our lives are not so different, friends. They're confined by limits in time and energy and resource. So the question we must all answer is what matters most to us because that's what we're going to put in the box of our lives. This passage seems to make that answer quite clear that my life must make room for this extravagant gratitude, for this generous beauty, and for this faithful dedication to Jesus that can and should be reflected in how we worship Yes, as an individual, and yes, as a church. Uh, Even when we come together corporately, is it it really anything for me to raise my hands and to sing in light of all that Jesus has done for me? I, I mean, many of us, we jump up and down when our team defeats their opponent in the game. What about when I see again how Christ defeated death for me? Seems like that's worth a bit of a response. Yes, I know it's vulnerable. It was for Mary as well. The whole room knew the depth of her love. It was filled with the fragrance of it. But could that be said of us when we come and worship? And then far beyond any church service, could my life be worship? Giving gifts of generous beauty to others knowing that in doing so, I am giving those same gifts to Jesus. Could I live a life marked by dedication, so genuine that Jesus would say, well, you want to tell people their story. Those seems to be the things we could pick up and put into the box of our life. Those seem to be the things we should make room for, because those friends are the things that will last. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove PNW. We'll see you next time.